Well, today we're pleased to announce we have a special offer. Mike Allen, good friend of the podcast, professor at RTS in Orlando, is offering a number of free subscriptions to or membership of uh, his Paideia groups that run around the country each year, are focused on studying classic texts from church history with a view to promoting the, the basic Catholicity of the Protestant Reformed faith. Uh, next year, they're going to be studying uh, Gregor the Great's pastoral rule and Martin Butzer's Concerning the True Care of Souls. And we have, as I say, a number of free uh, registrations to offer. If you go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you can see there that these groups are running around the country and online. And I'm very pleased uh, to be uh, helping to organize one myself in Grove City next year. So if you'd like to be involved in these excellent discussion groups, if you want to uh, learn more in depth about some classic text of church history, visit our website for a chance to get a free registration for one of the Paideia groups. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, Todd Pruitt, pastor of uh, PCA Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Amy Bird, aka the housewife theologian. And today we have a special guest. Uh, she's a lady called Emily Zenos. Uh, and she describes herself on her Twitter account as a woman, wife, mother, Catholic. I've given birth seven times. You don't scare me. Uh, <laughs> fantastic uh, Twitter handle, I have to say. So uh, welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you so much for having me on. I am absolutely honored to be here. <laughs> wow, that, she, we need to have her on again. Yeah, you, you're, you're clearly delusional. Already, you're our favorite guest. Yeah. You, you do have to realize I've spent the last 22 years at home with a whole bunch of kids. And you know, the, the most I ever wrote was a really long grocery list. And there's a whole lot of laundry. So this is really fun. <laughs> well, Emily is actually being exceptionally modest there because uh, she is... Uh, uh, a good writer. She's written uh, an article uh, on First Things uh, a couple of months back entitled Sex is Better Than Gender, addressing some of the issues being raised by uh, the current uh, transgender moment, to use Ryan Anderson's phrase, relative to uh, the latest iteration of the sexual revolution that's playing out in our culture. She's also involved in a group called Hands Across the Aisle, uh, whose byline is gender is the problem, not the solution, which is a very interesting coalition of what we might describe as, as traditional conservative uh, individuals uh, relative to matters of gender and radical feminists, because anybody 
somebody who has been following uh, feminism and developments in feminism over the last few years will be aware that the transgender moment has actually driven a wedge down the middle of of feminism. There are uh, what are now uh, disparagingly referred to as TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists who reject the fundamental premises of transgenderism and object to to men effectively grabbing hold of the narrative of of oppression and marginalization of women as as they see it, simply by declaring themselves to be women trapped in a men's body. So Emily's involved in an area that is politically extremely interesting and also one that arouses strong passions, uh, particularly among those who would advocate for the transgender moment and find any opposition to, to be completely and utterly unacceptable. So it's a great privilege to have you on the program, Emily. And I want to start by asking you, how did you get involved in this movement? Clearly, you said you, know, you spent the last 22 years at home with a load of kids. Uh, what is it that has, uh, should we say, radicalized you? As, uh, as a <laughs> yes, mother I, and a housewife. I think that for a lot of the people that are involved in this issue, it's not because they chose it. It was more that the issue chose them, um, that it, it showed up at their door one day. And the only answer is to, you know, step into the fray. So for, for me particularly, I had a number of my kids at a public charter school here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, in 2015, I got an email from the principal of the grade school. So, you know, the kindergarten through fifth graders saying that, a family had enrolled a kindergartner and this kindergartner was labeled as gender non-conforming. And frankly, I had never heard that term before. I could sort of surmise what it meant, but um, I hadn't heard it before. And the principal said um, in this email, the only way that we can ensure that this child is welcomed and prevent any sort of bullying is to read this book called My Princess Boy, which essentially, you know, details the very boring life and times of a boy who wears a girl's dress, right? Um, which sounds perhaps to some people as fairly benign, but my alarm bells went off immediately. <laughs> I thought, of first of all, why, why in a school that, or since its founding, had respected parents as primary educator and notified us before anything was going on in the classroom that was new, let alone controversial, plus had always involved us in developing new curriculum or bringing new ideas into the classroom that were outside of the, the map that the teachers used every year. Why all of a sudden for this one student who'd never been in the school a day, why were we making such drastic changes to the way that we were operating the school? Mm. That that concerned me. Then, of course, there's the subject material. You know, why why is it that we need to, why do we need to talk about boys wearing dresses in the classroom? You know, this kid can do what he wants when he goes home with his family. And then thirdly, why are we preventing, how is this preventing bullying? There hadn't even been a bullying incident yet, right? But we had to take all of these steps to ensure that it didn't happen. So um, that that was my introduction that, like I said, my alarm bells went off right away. And I started emailing my friends at the school. We'd been there about 12 years at the time. So I had a lot of connections. I knew a lot of people. Um, I discovered immediately that I wasn't the only parent with concerns. And uh, we, we essentially kind of formed a parent group. 
we started um, engaging with the school more officially than we had been for the past couple of years before that. We were at board meetings um, in numbers of, you know, at least 50 to 100 parents um, who were opposed to these ideas in the classroom. We're showing up to board meetings regularly. We were writing letters to the board. We were writing letters to the editor. We were um, filling out petitions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what ended up happening was that the family of this little boy eventually said, I think late fall, well, we've decided now that he's actually a girl. Um, he was no longer gender nonconforming. Now he was going to be a transgender girl. And they asked the school to introduce him to the kindergarten class as a girl. Mm. And then they wanted the kindergarten teacher to read the class. I am jazz, which you've probably heard of it details, uh, a boy who identifies as a girl, etc. Um, and what this family said was we insist that you not notify the parents before this little boy's coming out day. We don't want the parents to know that it's going to happen. And we don't want the parents to know that the kids are going to be read. I am jazz. The school hmm. said, we'll go ahead and do what you asked, but we want to notify parents, which was the right, at least in part, the right decision. Uh, that wasn't enough for the family. So they pulled their child out and they immediately filed a complaint with our city's Human Rights Commission. And about nine months later, the Human Rights Commission came back and said, this family was indeed discriminated against because the school insisted on simply telling parents that all of this was going to happen and that this family, the Human Rights Commission said, this family has the right to sue. So our school, uh, the knees buckled and they settled with the family for $120,000. Oh, uh, family walked away and now, you know, they, they essentially travel around telling their story and boasting of, of their winnings. Oh. And that's why, oh. that's why I'm involved. I, I yeah. should say, you know, we, we did pull our kids out of the school. Mm -hmm. um, part of that year included passing something called a gender inclusion policy, which essentially at core eradicated sex differences anywhere in the school, or I should say it eradicated the recognition of right. sex differences in all areas of policy and practice at the school. So we pulled our kids out and I thought, you know, I'm just going to shake the dust from my sandals and walk away from this. This has been a very difficult year, but I thought, you know, before I walk away from the issue, I'm just going to look into it a little bit more. I want to know why our five-year-old children, you know, thinking they're trapped in the wrong body, why are parents going along with that. I did a little, you know, perfunctory research and, and what I found absolutely floored me. It, it was sort of like, you know, if you, I don't know, been wandering down the street somewhere and, you know, World War II Poland and, and stumbled upon Auschwitz or something and, and you saw inside, could you live with yourself if you saw that? And then you just did nothing. You just went back to your regular everyday life. I kind of felt like I stumbled on an absolute atrocity like that when I discovered that children were undergoing sex reassignment yeah. surgeries. Yeah. Children were being sterilized by the treatments right. to you know, make them appear as the opposite sex. I knew when I found that out, I, I wasn't going to be able to just stay silent. Right. I was going to have to do something. And why not? You know, I used to say, oh, I'm just a mom. Actually, just a mom, that's the perfect position to be right. in if you want to speak out. Mm -hmm. Because I've got nothing to lose. And I know how to boss people around. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is a, this is a perfect example of, of the, the adage of you will be made to care. If, if you yes. think that, 
that that you can avoid being involved in this battle you can't it's particularly if you have children at home children are that that are in your schools they are being as a parent whether you know it or not they're being indoctrinated into this from one degree to another mm-hmm. right I'd like to talk a little bit about the article you wrote for First Things, um, Sex is Better Than Gender, and just why the language that we use is so important. You wrote it because the Department of Health and Human Services proposed removing gender identity from the definition of sex in the non-discrimination provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And you call this whole gender identity concept the self-creation gospel. But um, one of the things that you wrote in there, which is so important, is just as embodied persons, sex represents our whole psychosomatic unity. And so um, I just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit why um, our language is so important when we're talking about sex and gender and how, I mean, you talk about sex just to not talk about gender at all, just to talk about sex, but it's an artificial separation to separate the two. Well, it's complicated, but I, here, I, I guess I would start with saying that, you know, the whole transgender movement, which I sometimes call gender identity ideology, is a bad idea, right? It's a false idea of who the human person is. But the thing is, you can't transmit that bad idea in any way except for through language because it doesn't exist, right. okay? there There is no such thing as a gender identity. In fact, I would argue there is no such thing as a, a gender, as a human gender. Okay. But the only way to, to transmit this idea of the human person as being split between body and gender identity with gender identity acting in a way that's superior to the body is to transmit it through language. And, and what is the most powerful realm of language that exists. It's the law, right? The law does, isn't made up of, of things, of material things. The law is made up of language representing things in this world and, and helping us to navigate situations where our interests are clashing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so the perfect place to place a language-based bad idea is in the law, right? Because then you both you're both transmitting idea, your idea, and you're enforcing your idea on everyone else. So in that article, "Sex is Better Than Gender," I also talk about the fact that the law acts as like a, a pedagogical tool. Right. It's not just there, you know, to settle disputes. It's also there to teach us something about who we are and so forth, and what's good and what's right and what's wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So when talking about gender, I like to point out to people, especially to Christians who, you know, I didn't really think about gender. That wasn't really a word that I had used, but I certainly we've all run into people that are using it as a synonym for sex. There's a lot of people that use gender to describe like sociocultural or behavioral aspects of sex where gender is connected necessarily to sex, but it's not so much the material or bodily aspect of sex. And then of course, feminists use the word gender in a different way. They use gender to refer to sex stereotypes that are like imposed upon us from outside. So feminists have this sort of well, I shouldn't say all feminists. I have a lot of very dear feminist friends who don't necessarily think this way. But in general, you could say feminists think of, of women as a sort of tabula rasa, that we're a blank slate and that femininity and you know the makeup and the heels and all of that is a externally imposed set of restrictions on our behavior. Um, but those definitions of gender, I think, are actually just variations of what it was in originally intended to be which I would say is 
a name of an ideology that says your sex, your bodily sex is irrelevant to who you are. Um, you know, the first, yes, gender has been used for hundreds of years on occasion, and I should say rarely, um, as a synonym for sex. Mm-hmm. But really, you know, if you look at those those Google engrams where they, they show you how often a word shows up in all of the books that Google has scanned and, you know, online and so forth. If you look at the word gender, I mean, it just spikes starting around the 90s. And today it's just through the roof, right? Why are we using gender so much now? And what's that word intended to do or to mean in our use of it? And again, I I think it's, it's an ideology that says your sex is irrelevant to who you are. That was introduced in a, a, a more simple form by Dr. John Money, who you might have heard of. He was infamous for the Reimer twins case. Um, he, he, was, he had a theory that it was nurture that would make you who you are as a boy or a girl or a man or a woman just as much as nature. In fact, even more so. So if you had a a child with a disorder of sexual development who had uh, external genitalia that were hard to determine as male or female, you could just pick, right? You could just say, well, uh, this boy has a very small penis. Let's just surgically remove it, um, shape his body to look sort of like a female and then pretend he's a female. And lo and behold, he'll be a female and he'll never have any internal conflict with that. Of course, we know that's ridiculous, right? Because your sex is not um, imposed from without. Your sex is not something that can be manipulated or changed. But that was his theory. And that theory kind of um, made its way, you know, like a lot of things into academia And then from academia began to trickle down. You know, if you have a study come out that's got kind of a catchy title or an odd hypothesis, sometimes like good housekeeping will pick it up or cosmopolitan or something like that. Um, Little by little, his ideas started to make headway into our culture more broadly and have brought us to the point where now today um, we have this ideology that I call gender identity ideology, which says that, you know, your your desired or your self-perceived status as male, female, both or neither is is who you are. That, you know, which we, we can say right there, we know when people are talking about gender today or when we're talking about a gender identity law, we're not talking about sex. Right. We're not mm-hmm. going to get anywhere arguing with trans activists that when gender identity shows up in a law, it was meant to mean sex. Mm-hmm. Because if it's if your gender identity is male, female, both or neither, we couldn't possibly be talking about sex because there is no such thing as both or yeah. neither. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, it's interesting because as as a pastor, I certain bells go off every time I hear uh, trans activists uh, speak or or read their material, and I was reminded of that uh, again, just as you were sharing some of those thoughts. Is this idea that is is rooted in um, in the rebellion that's described in in Genesis three, and uh, man's propensity to be his own maker, um, and what a great way to become my own god if I can determine what I am. Uh, da- down to the to the to the very uh, architecture of my body, down to to even determining what I am, even more than what every cell in my body tells me what I am. 
um, it, it's an extraordinary act of, of human uh, hubris to be able to exercise that sort of power over myself, o over the way that I've been designed, not, not only outwardly, but what, what screams out from every cell of my body. Well, even the history of the usage of the word gender before around the 90s when it really exploded, like you say, Emily, um, I, I really benefited from reading Sister Prudence Allen's volumes on the concept of woman, and she gets into defining um, kind of the usage of the word and that root gen, which from the beginning of Judaism traces the generations of the history of people. So that root of generation, gen, gender, it's all connected with the concept of sex. It must be. So it's like a man and a woman who become father or mother through their union. And so it's such an artificial separation then to divorce gender from sex and, and even creation. But maybe we could talk about how, and, and this is where I think the radical feminists are really upset too, is that it, it robs us then of any real distinction or real contributions um, you know, in the synergetic effect of men and women who generate together. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I appreciate what Sister Prudence Allen has to say, but one quibble that I have is, you know, this is, this is not our word. I understand that, you know, at root, we're, we're using this, this gen and we're talking about collaboration and life giving and so forth and mm -hmm. all these wonderful things, but that's not why we're having this argument no, in completely the public square, now. right? Right. Yeah, right. So we know when we're talking about gender with Sister Prudence Allen's definition, we're not going to be able to have a conversation that makes sense with a trans activist who has right. a completely different right. definition of gender. And yeah, so I, I think, you know, there have been some interesting articles, not a ton, but a few interesting articles where, you know, the, the question is, do we, do we baptize the word gender? Mm as Christians? Do we take that word, we fight for it, do we claim it as our own, and we, we fight to redefine it in the world? In my opinion, it's not worth it. Number one, because I don't see really any evidence that that word belongs to us in the first place. What I see is that word coming into common usage uh, because of some bad theories, right? And then I see us trying to, trying our best to see something good in that word, but there's, it, it turns out that that word really is there just to represent an ideology. And at this point, you know, sometimes you have to see that, that the meaning of a word has gone in a direction that you didn't intend or you wished it didn't, right. but that's where it's gone. And so at this point, I kind of wonder why we want to spend any time trying to claim gender for ourselves as Christians mm -hmm. and, and work really hard among the Christian faithful to teach them a different set of meanings for this word when when they walk out into the world. And I think part of our role as, as evangelists is to prepare our sisters and brothers for these conversations in the world. How are we preparing? Are we preparing them well for these conversations? Are we preparing them well to engage politically mm -hmm. if their understanding of gender doesn't match up with the way it's being used by our politicians and the way that it's being used by our school officials, for example. We have a lot of confusion. And in fact, I think that the other side, the trans activist side, has made so many gains because we've stubbornly insisted on the definition of gender language, as something yeah. that we like. I say, just surrender it. Let's surrender the word gender and let's go back to sex, which is a better 
I think, and fuller description of who we are. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, it speaks to the divide. The difference is key when it comes to sex. There is a reason why God created us male and female, yet we only image God fully when we collaborate, right? Because if men and women both image God, then it's men and women working together in collaboration that most fully shine his image into this world, right? And so I think that we have to get back to, as you were, as you were saying earlier, um, recognizing the difference between the sexes and, and, and getting back to being able to see that. Well, I think we see that best when we're talking about sex, because even in the more benign interpretations of gender, which say, you know, there are these behaviors or cultural attitudes that are attached to sex, but not necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. Like I could drive a truck and smoke a cigar at the same time and I'd still be a woman. And, yes. and In a feminine uh, way, yes. right? I was, I have to say, Emily, I was with two women last night who were both smoking cigars and they're sitting in the room things. today. Right, right. But, but that's to say that doesn't, those behaviors aren't inextricably linked to sex in, in so much that they, they then dictate who I am. So right. if I smoke a cigar, I don't become a man, right? right? So it's linked to sex, but it doesn't change our sex. Whereas with right. sex, we know we're talking about something concrete that doesn't change. With gender, we're talking about things that are slightly removed. And again, I'm talking about, you know, a more benign understanding of gender, right. not the ideological right. one. Right. It's still it's still describing something removed from the body. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm concerned that even with that benign definition, we're going to get confused and I think that's why the activists made such headway. Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that they have recreated this as a, a separate thing, gender, really does mm -hmm. take away any meaningful distinctions between the sexes. And instead, the distinctions are more stereotypical. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, trying to pretend and take on feminine qualities as a man is, is just... Just cosmetic. Uh, it's very artificially constructed yeah, yeah. And, and impossible. Right. And, you know, I do like to remind people, though, like, take your typical gender identity law. Like, you could look at the New York City gender identity law. It, it's pretty quickly you'll realize that it's not even sex stereotypes that they're trying to enshrine in law. Because it says you're allowed to access facilities or opportunities that are specific to a sex based on your gender identity, which is, again, male, female, both, or neither. So that means a man with a beard who's balding and has a dirty t-shirt on and some old basketball shorts is welcome to use the female restroom. Describe he does me. not have to wear dress. <laughs> he doesn't have to put on lipstick. Right, right. <laughs> he, he's free to enter that. So right. they don't expect you that you don't even have to go that far yeah no no mm, this no. this i think Point. emily takes us to another issue i'd like to raise yeah i've written a, a few things on first things touching on transgender stuff over the years and one of the responses i've had a couple of times has been you know the quotation from i think it's from thomas jefferson you know it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg what's the big deal mm. But it seems to me that there are huge privacy issues here i, I came across this uh in my own school district back in Philadelphia, when I was asked to, to front a letter to the school board over transgender policy, uh, and one of the aspects of the local policy was that when a child came out as transgender at school, the school declared that it was under no obligation to tell the child's parents about that. In other words, the school was on its own account saying that it had more rights to know who the child was mm -hmm. than the child's own parents did. 
And I raised in my, my letter to the school board the issue of parental rights, privacy, those kind of things. People need to realize that this is not an issue that, that just affects the family's concern, but as you've pointed to, has repercussions for mm -hmm. privacy. And I noticed one of the other groups you're involved with is, with all this spare time you have as a mother <laughs> of a mere seven children, um, Ask Me First Minnesota, a pro-privacy project of Minnesota Family Council. wonder if you'd like to, to just talk a little bit about the way uh, that privacy is impacted by uh, the transgender moment. Or you could say privacy. Or you could That's say fine. privacy. Or you could say privacy, yes. <laughs> I don't know, I kind of like privacy. <laughs> well, one thing I like to point out is, um, again, take the logic of these gender identity laws and, and, and do the math. How does it work out? So if we have a restroom that is a girl's restroom but allows people to use it based on their gender identity, that means that a boy can claim a female gender identity and use the girl's restroom. Well, what does that mean? That means we don't have a girl's restroom right. anymore, right? right? It, it means we now have a, a restroom that's open to anyone. And it's the same when it comes to sports, mm -hmm. um, you know, all other areas of, of privacy, like locker rooms and fitting rooms. Um, a lot of people don't realize, I don't know what happened to everyone, but we, <laughs> there seems to be a lot of forgetting going on. But the reason we've separated uh, restrooms by sex, and frankly, it's one of the very few areas of our culture today where we actually do make distinctions based on sex. I mean, try to come up with like 10 things that are separated by sex. Yeah. It's hard to do, yeah. um, but we still do that with restrooms and fitting rooms and locker rooms. And that's because we know, know. that men prey on women and girls, not all men, <laughs> but we know sometimes bad men can prey on women and girls in those spaces because you're vulnerable when you're changing your clothes and you're vulnerable when you're using the restroom. Um, and today with um, uh, tiny cameras and I mean, even a phone camera, voyeurism is at an all time high in um, South Korea, I don't know if you've oh, read any of the articles about yeah. the absolute disaster that they're having there. They, I, I'm forgetting the name they use for spy cam porn. It's something like oh. Moloka. But anyway, the point is uh, they are having an epidemic of men sneaking into women's restrooms, drilling holes in the wall or the stall doors and sticking in these tiny like screw sized yes. cameras and then streaming it to the web. Right. And this is in a, in, a, in a culture where they still do separate restrooms by sex. Wow. Men aren't allowed to use those restrooms because they identify as women. They're sneaking in. So imagine how much easier it is once you've advertised to people that this restroom is open to anyone who wants to use it. Right. So in Canada, uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor, his name is Paul Dirks, and he runs a website called Woman Means Something. He did a study of like uh, crime reports in the media about Target stores after they had announced their gender identity policy in their stores, which is essentially, you know, anyone can use any fitting room or restroom based on their gender identity. Um, and what, what Paul found was that once it became publicly known that you could do that at Target, that a man could use the women's fitting rooms, the number of voyeurism crimes in the fitting rooms at Target stores spiked. Hmm. They went through the roof. And the reason is that men now knew they could get away with that and no right. one would ask any questions. Um, there's another report. Who could have ever seen that coming? 
I know this is where I'm saying what happened to common sense I mean I thought we all knew we didn't want our young daughters using Mm -hmm. the restroom with grown men but you know apparently we've we've gouged our eyes out Um, another report out of out of the UK showed that in uh, I think they call them leisure centers but areas where you know pools community pools where they have changing rooms if the changing rooms are accessible based on gender identity then the number of sexual crimes reported spiked as well Hmm. so the sexual crime can include you know voyeurism it can include you know an assault all sorts of things but all of those crimes spiked simply because they were allowing uh, men into those spaces and they made it publicly known so i mean i my question to our our legislators is you know is this a crime wave that you want to introduce into our culture and i ask women where are you on this if you're concerned about violence against women if you're concerned about sexual crimes against women if you're you know involved in the me too movement where are you on this issue because this is this is really really dangerous for women and girls Mm. man emily i feel like I feel like we could talk so much more. I would love to have you back on another time to continue this conversation. I'm really appreciative for the the writing and the work that you've done and and having that um that voice as a mother of seven children um speaking out about this important issue. You recommend a book that we're going to do a giveaway on that people can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and enter to win Daniel Moody's The Flesh Made Word. And I just want to encourage our listeners to um, follow Emily Zenos on Twitter. She also has the website handsacrossthealewomen.com where you can look more into the work that she is doing. And I want to thank our listeners. And while you're over at our website... Uh, We appreciate any uh, donations to the podcast so that we can continue our work here. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... The question of physical and sexual abuse, of course, is, is one thing. Uh, a more subtle, perhaps, but maybe equally important and serious 
a question surrounds the matter of spiritual abuse. The problem, of course, is when you talk about emotional abuse or spiritual abuse, because there are no physical scars, there is no physical damage that can be empirically verified. You step more and more into the realm of subjective judgments. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I am going to be giving birth for the eighth time in March. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. We're so excited. I, I would have thought I would be you know, crying on the floor, but, <laughs> but I am surprised by God's grace and we are absolutely delighted. And you can probably imagine how excited our kids are. Oh wow. yeah. Gosh. <laughs> I mean, I, I only had two. They're both grown up and left home now, but uh, he's Protestant. Was, he only has I two. Protestant, yeah. <laughs> uh, our house was chaos with two. I just cannot imagine. <laughs> and I grew up as one of three, which was chaos. It just but lasts eight, longer. Wow. That's amazing. I just tell people it's it's basically a party all the time. You know, sometimes there's there's punching involved and all of that, but it's, it's essentially a party involved. all the time over here. <laughs> For all the hype, you know, we live in a small house. Everything is about five minutes from our home, and we only have one bathroom in this house. What? So. I think we could get away with living in Europe. Yeah. I, I hope you have all boys because if you have any any girl children, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, in our family, you're not allowed to do anything but use the actual bathroom for what it's, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, quick question, Emily. How do you pronounce, when I, when I introduce you, how do you pronounce your surname? Is it Zinos or Zinos or Zinos? Uh, uh, none of those, actually. Oh. It's Xenos. Xenos. That's okay. how I pronounced it, Carl. Yeah, I'm uh, I think women are better at pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. <laughs>